Welcome to the Be Kind to Yourself podcast. My name is Juliana Parker, and I'm delighted and honored to be your host. The goal of this podcast is twofold. My first goal is to increase your awareness of ways you can show yourself self-compassion and grace. My second goal is to send you a virtual high fiver hug to remind you of your power and strength as a human. Each episode, we will discuss the nitty-gritty of what it means to be kind to yourself through guest interviews and actionable tips and strategies. I really appreciate you being here as I know how busy life can be. I hope you will consider subscribing, and as my dad would say, let's get rolling. Hello there. I hope you are well wherever you are, and I just wanted to take a moment to check in with you, see how you are, um, see how life is going for you, and just touch base. So before we dive into this week's episode, which I think you'll really enjoy, I wanted to share a quote that I heard over the weekend. So a little backstory, I have two big dogs, really big dogs, who uh, whom I have to walk separately. So that actually gives me a nice opportunity to walk with them, listen to podcasts, and just kind of enjoy being outside. And I know, shocker, right, that I would enjoy podcasts. Um, I do. I love them. There's so many I listen to, and um, I just feel like I've benefited so much from just hearing other people's experiences or lessons people have shared, insights. That being said, as I was walking one of my dogs, who actually, I think it was Lola, my black lab, I was listening to a podcast and the podcast host shared a really great quote that I loved. And the quote was, asking for help is a sign of strength and also gives you permission to not give up. So I'll say that one more time. Asking for help is a sign of strength and gives you permission to not give up. And I just really felt that was powerful. Oftentimes, as humans, when we think about asking for help, we perhaps may see it as a sign of weakness, or we're ashamed to ask for assistance with something. But actually, if you think about it, by asking for help, it really encourages, enables, supports us getting done what we want to get done by, you know, not giving up on that task. So example for you, uh, my sister is an excellent cook and baker. Me, not so much. And so I reflected back a couple years ago and we were trying to make something together in the kitchen and my uh, creation was a hot mess, but I was determined that I wanted to figure out how to do it. And so I was just able to ask her, hey, could you help me? Like, how do you do this? I don't quite get it. Um, And it was just kind of that icing on the cake that I needed to complete what I was doing. Now, it wasn't perfect. I really didn't care if it was or not. But it really just helped me, like, feel a sense of completion that I just didn't abandon it because I didn't know how to do it. Um, So... Anyway, I just wanted to encourage you to kind of think about that this week. If you are experiencing challenging times, having difficulty doing something, to reach out for help. So without further ado, 
uh, moving into next week's episode. Thanks a lot. Hello, and welcome to the Be Kind to Yourself podcast. I'm so happy that you're here today. I'm also really excited to welcome my guest today, Dr. Diana Hill. Welcome, Dr. Hill. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And before we get started, I'd love for you just to share a little bit about your background with our listeners. Sure. That's always sort of a big question, right? How far back <laughs> yeah. do I go and right. how much do I share? But I, I'll say that I'm a psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist in Santa Barbara, California. And I really see myself as a psychological flexibility guide, which means I help people uh, become more psychologically flexible in their lives, which involves knowing what mat matters to you, what you care about, how to pursue those things, how to stay present and engaged in the important domains of your life. And some of those important domains for me is also being a parent and being a partner and being a friend. So I'm, I'm have those identities as well as being an author. I have authored the book Act Daily Journal and have a podcast called Your Life in Process as well. And I should say I'm a big fan of both your podcast and your book. The book's on my bedside table and I love it. I do have some questions kind of that I like to ask all my guests. So my first question for you is what does the concept of being kind to yourself mean to you either personally and or professionally? Well, I saw that question and I, you know, I kind of wanted to take a little bit of a different angle on it because, yeah. you know, I was thinking about, I always like to tell stories. So I was thinking about, okay, what is being kind? When was I kind to myself this week? And what did that look like? And actually sometimes being kind to myself means doing hard things doing uncomfortable things that are in the service of caring for my whole being. And so earlier this week on Monday, I went to the dentist and I have a, I have a dental phobia. Actually, I've had a long time dental phobia and it actually has a lot to do with a period of my life when I wasn't so kind to myself. So I have a history of an eating disorder and bulimia. And one of the places it shows up is on your teeth and it does not that does not go away. It's there forever. So at 40, whatever years old, I still show that in my teeth. And every time I go to the dentist, it's a little bit like, oh my gosh, you know, mm. he's seeing my history, right? So being kind to myself is not canceling the dentist appointment because I'm anxious and being kind to myself is not putting it off to another time when I think I'll feel better, which isn't usually the case. I'm always anxious, you know, going to the dentist, being kind to myself was actually how I talk to myself as I go into the office. Um, it's asking for support for, from people that know me and my, my fear around the dentist, like my partner who, you know, is texting me. I know today's a hard day. You have a dentist appointment and <laughs> allowing some of that kindness in from others. And then being kind to myself is also just being, I think, really practicing self-compassion and understanding that we all have struggles. And some of the things that we struggle with, people don't see on the outside, we experience on the inside, but that's part of being human and um, acknowledging and accepting and allowing for um, the sort of messiness of life. And so allowing myself to have that part of my history is also being kind to myself. And that's where I think kindness, self-kindness gets mixed up sometimes with um, being like soft or nice or 
because it's not all about bubble baths and pedicures. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. doing hard stuff and does require this concept of psychological flexibility, which is what I work on with my clients a lot too, is like, how do you be kind to yourself in a way that's psychologically flexible because you're pursuing something that matters to you in your life. And I love that distinction that you make about how it's not bubble baths. I mean, it can be, but that a lot of times being kind to yourself is doing hard things to support ourselves and helping ourselves get through that. Absolutely. And it's, it's both. It's like, there's a I interviewed Kristen Neff, you know, the yes. self-compassion guru, oh, researcher in the arena of self-compassion a couple of times. And her newest book is Fierce Self-Compassion. And I loved what she had to say about self-compassion having these two components. Like it has the, it has the gentle, tender warmth to it, you know, of how do we turn to ourselves with that sort of that tone of voice that is soothing and warm and, and gentle. But then it also has a fierceness to it, which is the the part of us that wants to protect ourselves and set boundaries and limits and sometimes assert ourselves in difficult situations. And that is being kind to ourselves as well, but it can be like harder and it, it mm-hmm. has more energy behind it. So the, the real, the yin, the yang of compassion and kindness. And that's been something that's evolved for me over time, because I, I think I sometimes have a harder time with the more fierce of compassion. But as I, as I grow up, it's becoming more of an aspect of my life, an important aspect of showing up in the world. Thank you. So I'm wondering our second question, are there times where you've struggled with incorporating self-compassion and why do you think as humans, we struggle so much with this? Oh, well, you know, when I talk, I'll answer the second part first, which is, you know, when I talk about self-compassion with my clients and I'm actually writing another book right now on self-compassion. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's going to come out um, probably in about a year or so. But when I talk with clients about sort of the why behind it, I I talk about this concept of a Russian doll. Remember those little stacking Mm. dolls that our kids played with and, and the, the smallest little doll in there is the, is your brain. So it's in the words of Paul Gilbert, it's not your fault that you struggle with self-compassion because our brains are designed to look for mistakes. Our brains are designed to monitor us and compare us and even be a little bit critical because that is a self evolutionarily. That was a self-protecting mechanism of your brain to make sure that you're not harmed and that you stay part of the group, right? Like evolutionarily, that's mm-hmm. how our brains have this negativity bias. But then what happens is we have these other Russian dolls that stack on top so that, so the next Russian doll is your learning history of your childhood. What, what was modeled to you by your parents? Were your parents self-critical? Was there um, perfectionism in the household? Were, were you praised for being, you know, uh, overly perfect or were you punished when you made mistakes? Our education system is, is part of that in terms of what it focuses on. You know, it, it's like more about red pens than about the process of learning, more about corrections. And then our self-criticism also can be shaped by another layer of Russian doll, which is our culture and our society and the messages from our culture and our society. And, and based on the many different identities that we all hold. So for, for me, if I look back on my history of self-criticism around like my body image, right, that has a lot to do with my identities as a woman and the culture that I grew up in and the things that were identified as sort of the ideal standards of beauty, right? 
-hmm. for others that are in oppressed positions or in positions where they're a minoritized community, there may may be some internalized self-criticism from cultural and institutional factors. So all of that kind of stacks upon itself. Mm -hmm. And, And so I guess the, the, the first thing I would say is that it makes, it's like not our fault that um, we tend to be self-critical. And then the last sort of layer is what do we do about it with our behavior? Mm. And how do we act in ways that uh, maybe have more awareness when it shows up and how do we do it differently? But the times the times for me when, when I have a hard time um, with self-compassion, I ha- it's like frequent. <laughs> yeah. it's, it has to do around, for me, it's a lot of like perfectionism around making mistakes that I think that maybe could have been harmful to someone, you know, um, as a therapist, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of power in the, in the role of a therapist. Like, what if I say something that isn't the right thing that actually is not helpful? Yeah. And then I can have a tendency to sort of ruminate on that. Like I should have said this differently, or I didn't say it this way. And one of the things that can happen is that when we get caught in guilt and rumination about making mistakes and we get really harsh with ourselves, it actually prevents our learning because Mm -hmm. then it becomes about me and my mistake, as opposed to acknowledging, okay, this happened. And then how can I learn from it and do something differently? And that requires self-compassion. And the research around self-compassion is really sort of demonstrated that, that folks that are more self-compassionate actually are more likely to make amends and be able to, um, understand their transgressions and learn from their mistakes than folks that are caught up in self-criticism and shame or folks that just sort of brush everything off and say, oh, no, I didn't make a mistake. I'm, you know, I'm great. I'm infallible. So I'm, you know, I learn along the way that it's more effective to be self-compassionate, but it's not always my automatic default. Right. Thank you. And so being that I've spoken about this before, we're in Southern California, uh, in and out is very popular here. Um, and I know for my kids, they love the secret sauce. They always get extra packets of the secret sauce to take home. But I'm wondering for you, Dr. Hill, what's your own secret sauce that you've developed and you've created for how to be kind to yourself? What does that look like? What are the ingredients? Oh, my secret sauce. Um, part of my secret sauce is, uh, my regular practice of tuning in. And so even as I answered that question, I closed my eyes and I took a breath because I was engaging with my secret sauce for a moment of, (laughs) you know, that I have a tendency to lose myself and in order to practice self-compassion, I need to pause frequently and, and tune in like what's happening in my body in this moment. What am I feeling? What do I need? Um, what hurts because I have as many of us do. And I would imagine many of those people that are listening right now have a tendency just to override that. So when, when, one component of the secret sauce would be regular tune-ins, uh, two eyes in, and then another component of the secret sauce for me is, is really the name of my podcast, Your Life in Process, mm-hmm. which has to do with just allowing my life to be in process and to be have lots of twists and turns to it and not have to be anywhere other than where I am right now and um, trusting the process of life and trusting the process of 
my own learning and unfolding and not having to have it be quite so linear. And that gives me just a little bit more freedom just to be curious about what's going to be around what's, what's around the corner and change is constantly happening and open openness to change. Um, and then I would say the third, this is going to be like more of a concrete thing, but the third component of, of my secret sauce is real commitment to my morning practice. Mm-hmm. And so I have a, a deep commitment. The first thing I do in the morning is dedicated to me. And I go down to this little space that I'm in and I, and I either journal or I do some meditation or I do some breath work or some mornings it's just, I just sit there with a big cozy blanket and just close my mm-hmm. eyes for a few moments and have a cup of coffee and giving that time to myself before I start giving to my children and my clients and life is really important for me to, to like, I can always return there every morning. That's definitely a part of my secret sauce too. And I'm wondering for you, Dr. Hill, how, um, I love that you have that, that practice every morning. How did you find that practice or recognize that you needed that dedicated practice? You know, it was really through some kind of early habit formation stuff. I had, I had kind of have always kind of grappled with, okay, I want to journal or I want to like breathe or I want to meditate. And I couldn't really figure out how to make it be regular. Um, but I remember reading actually Tara Brock, the book radical acceptance and reading her for a long time now. And I remember either reading her book or hearing her say at one point that she made a commitment to having a meditation practice, but her commitment is one minute counts or three minute counts, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's not that you have to have it for a certain amount of time. So I started by using some behavioral psychology with pairing my cup of coffee, which is something I do do every morning. <laughs> I, yes. I will say like hundred percent of the time, unless I'm getting a blood <laughs> test, I will have a cup of coffee in the morning. So I, I took some of BJ Fogg's behavioral science method of like pair, pair something that you a habit you want to create with a habit that you already have. Right. Mm-hmm. So I paired it with my cup of coffee and it's also a pleasurable activity yeah. to just come down to my space, my, what, what is my meditation space or my little private space. And, you know, I've worked with folks that don't have, you know, they live in an apartment that don't, they don't have like a separate space. But you could ha- create a little altar or a little cushion in the corner somewhere um, yeah. that's sort of the, the place that you go to. And there is something that's important about um, sort of the the location and the regularity of that that creates the routine and the ritual, really more of a ritual than a routine. So I started with that of just as long as I have my coffee and I go down there, that's the first step. And then I really started to enjoy it. And I created flexibility within it that it doesn't always have to be the same thing. I do the same thing with movement where I make a commitment to move on a regular basis, but it isn't some days my movement is gentle walking. Some days my movement is high intensity interval training. It depends on how I'm, you know, how I'm doing on that day. So I really also allowed for some variability. I kept the commitment but with variability within the commitment. And now it's just something that I, um, I want to do. I I long to do because I really appreciate just the time with myself. I'm kind of learning how to (laughs) like myself, I guess. (laughs) Thank you. And I love that point you made about the variability within the commitment. You know, it's not the same every time and, but it's intentional choices you make that support yourself however that looks, but I think that's great. Cause I, I think it's hard. Sometimes we feel guilty carving that time out for ourselves, or we feel we should be doing something different or, and there's been times, um, you know, my kids are sick 
yeah, or, um, you know, times when it's like, okay, I can't, I mean, I really try and keep the commitment to coming to my space, but I've had mornings where my kids have been sick and I've been on, you know, on the floor and they're on the couch and I'm just taking a few minutes with my coffee and closing my eyes and just breathing and listening to them, you know, play or whatever. And so they're the variability within the commitment. If we think about that, you know, we can have variability within our commitments to our partners, right? Like, like we're committed to our partners, but our, maybe I've been married over, you know, I don't know how long I've been with my partner over 20 years and our marriage has changed so much. Our relationship has changed so much. There's been variability within our commitment. We have the commitment to each other, um, variability in how we've navigated our relationship. So I, I'm a big believer in flexibility and commitment that those can go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And so in addition to your wonderful podcast, which I'd love for you just to share more about, are there any other favorite resources, books, podcasts, favorite quotes that have supported you in your journey of learning how to be kind to yourself? Ooh, I have so many books. I cannot even begin looking at my shelf over here. <laughs> yeah. The problem of too many books. I mentioned a few. I had mentioned, I really like Tara Brock's work and I really like Paul Gilbert has been a nice sort of has offered me a lot in, in the arena of compassion focused therapy. Rick Hansen is a, a mentor of yes. mine and a good friend. And so I love all of his work, but I also really love poetry and I, and I love folks that are more in the contemplative practice realm. So Rupi Kaur wrote the book homebody. It's a, it's a poem. It's a book, book of poetry. And I, and I just, I love to read her work as well as um, Pema Chodron is another go-to of mine who I could read Pema Chodron's work like and I have been like the same book for years and I just read little <laughs> snippets of it. So a lot of, I mean, I, my podcast really stands at the intersection of psychological science with contemplative wisdom and contemplative practice. And so I do draw in some of these, you know, sort of Eastern practices and yoga and things like that, because that's what's been helpful for me. It's sort of thinking that there's, there's wisdom in a lot of different places. And, and, and I think sometimes psychology has been a little bit siloed off and not mm -hmm. acknowledging wisdom from a lot of different places. So that's what your life in process really, it's like, I'll have like a researcher on one week and then I'll have a Zen monk on the next <laughs> week. And then I'll have, you know, just people that interest me. So I think my final question, I will be including in the show notes ways to find you, but I'm wondering as we do wrap up things, if you could impart a final message to our listeners, Dr. Hill, what would you like to say to them? What would you like your takeaway to be or their takeaway to be rather? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, if we're, if we're kind of homing in on this concept of self-love to be gentle, flexible, and um, allow yourself to be sort of always in the sort of the, the small adjustments that are necessary for that. So, you know, I often think about things in relationship to yoga as, as a yoga teacher and yoga practitioner. And when you're in a balanced pose, you're, you're never really still, you're always making these little micro adjustments in and out and finding your center. And I think that self-love looks like that, that it's not perfect. And if you're trying to practice self-love perfectly, then that's not being <laughs> loving, right? So to, to allow yourself a little bit of wiggle room and a little bit of wobbling and, um, and then find your way back over and over again, that's, that's what it's looked like for me. And I think that's what it looks like for a lot of 
the clients that I work with as well. It's a little bit wiggly. I like that a little wiggly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, and that's a beautiful image, right? That it's, it's good to be wiggly and kind of, we don't have to be perfect in our attempts. So then finally, where can people go to find out more about you? If they'd like to find out about your podcast or your books or your course offerings. Yeah. So my, my website has a ton of resources, drdianahill.com. And once you start kind of looking around on there, you'll find there's a summit that I do on a yearly basis. That's free. The from striving to thriving summit. I have a course on act. I have, you know, my podcasts on there. Um, most recently I just, and I think this will be up by the time you put stuff, I just added in a new sort of quiz on like what kind of striver you are with a toolkit that people can download that's for free. And part of the reason why I just do a lot of that work is that I want to be able to connect with a lot of people that, you know, my private practice, I can only see a few, you know, few folks yeah. a week and, and it's been really rewarding to be able to connect with a larger community in that way. So I'm also on insight timer, which is a newer platform where I have free meditations. And so that's an, if people want to look for, you know, little 10 minute meditations, that's another place you can find me. And it's just Dr. Diana Hill. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Hill, it's been such a pleasure interviewing you today. And I just appreciate um, your sharing your perspectives, your wisdom with us, and just agreeing to be on my podcast. It means a lot to me. So thank you so much. And to my listeners, just a final reminder to be kind to yourself. Please note that the Be Kind to Yourself podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health therapy. If you are interested in pursuing mental health therapy, I encourage you to connect with the provider in your area. Thanks so much.